you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles with me, you can turn, if you'd like, to that passage that uh, Jonathan just read for us in 1 Corinthians 11. We will be looking at that here in a moment. Um, but as we study together, I encourage you uh, to let your focus be on God's word. That, that's where the power is. Uh, if there's anything of, of value that we're going to learn in our time spent here, it's not going to be because of the words of Grady Huggins. It's going to be because of the words of Almighty God. Uh, but certainly it is a blessing uh, that God has given us opportunities such as this. Thank you, Aaron. Um, if you want to plug it in. And I apologize again for the difficulties that we're having here. But we're just getting started. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, we'll focus on that passage in just one moment. Okay. Thank you for your help. We've been studying in the book of Acts recently. Um, and one thing that we noticed at the very beginning of the early church, uh, in Acts chapter 2, is that we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Um, just one second. There we go. And it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What does that mean? Uh, later on in the same passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we see it talks about how they were breaking bread from house to house. And it says they took their food or their meals with gladness. They're talking about more of a kind of hospitality that they're showing towards one another. But earlier in Acts 2 and verse 42, when it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, literally it's the, the breaking of the bread. It, it's a very specific phrase that we're talking about here, a formal idea. Uh, and this is not something that's just incidental to their service to God either. It's something that they were devoting themselves to in their service to the Lord. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we see that Paul, in his travels, uh, made a point uh, in the city of Troas of assembling together with the brethren there for the purpose of breaking bread. What, what's so important about breaking bread? What, what is that talking about? And why is it something that God's people would devote themselves to? Well, if there's any question about what the scripture is talking about in these passages, maybe it will help us clear it up by looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Here, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so when we see these phrases about the early church devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, we're not just talking about, you know, that well, the early church, they really like to eat, and they really like to eat together. No, they're devoting themselves to the memorial meal of Jesus' body and blood, of the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. What is so important about the Lord's Supper? That's what I want us to, to focus on Today, and Lord willing, next week as well, we're going to focus on some different aspects of the Lord's Supper. Um, why is it among the first things that we see the early church devoting themselves to? I'm afraid sometimes uh, we may not be as devoted, I may not be as devoted to breaking the breaking of the bread uh, as I need to be. It's very easy week after week to allow the Lord's Supper to become kind of somewhat of a checklist item. That, well, that's just one of the things that we, we do when we come together on Sundays. 
But I think we'll see that in the scriptures it is much, much more than that. How important is the Lord's Supper? Well, we've already seen that the early church from the get-go, from the very beginning, was devoting themselves, among other things, to the breaking of bread. This word means continue steadfastly or give constant attention to. It was something that they were regularly participating in and focusing on as God's people. And the passage that Jonathan read for us here, if you're still turned to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 through 30, we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. He says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died or some have fallen asleep. Now, perhaps some think that he's talking literally here that they're being punished for their disobedience and and physical sickness, physical death. Uh, I think perhaps maybe it's more talking about the, the spiritual condition of these Christians because they're not giving the proper attention to remembering the price that was paid for their sins. Because they're not giving the proper attention to this this process of self-examination that they were supposed to be going through on a regular basis as they think about uh, what Jesus had done on their behalf and what that meant for their lives. And so they were drifting back into spiritual death and alienation from the Lord. And yet proper observance of the Lord's Supper was central to their spiritual health, to their spiritual growth. And one thing that impresses me greatly is the Lord's Supper is the only God-instituted memorial of the New Testament. Now think about that in the context of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, how many memorials did God establish or or did God um, uh, approve? We see in the Old Testament, they they had the, the Passover which would commemorate their uh, departure from Egyptian bondage when God sent the ten plagues, uh, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And as the angel passed over, God spared the Israelite houses as they put the the blood on the the doorpost and the lintel. Even the dedication of the firstborn that happened at every first birth was a reminder of what God had done in the death of the firstborn and their release from Egyptian bondage. They also had Pentecost, which in the Old Testament is talked about more as a celebration of the first fruits, but we know at least in later Judaism, became a memorial of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Um, They had the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which was kind of commemorating their time of wandering in the wilderness when they were in tents. Uh, They eventually established Purim. Uh, In the book of Esther, we read about the establishing of that as they commemorated their deliverance in the days of Esther. Uh, Every week they had a Sabbath that was, in one sense, commemorating God's rest on the seventh day after creation and, and looking forward to the final rest that he would provide. They had the Day of Atonement, a yearly sacrifice reminding them of their sins and their need for forgiveness. And on top of all of that, uh, they had many even physical memorials. You look through the Old Testament, you see Jacob lifting up a stone in Bethel and lifting up a stone to commemorate his uh, agreement or his covenant with Laban. You see, as they cross the Red Sea, those 12 stones that they set up on the other side, 
Um, and even in Joshua 24, when Joshua renews the covenant with the people, they once again set up a stone as a memorial of the covenant that they've made. Uh, later on, on the opposite side of the Jordan, they set up an altar to remind the people on the east side of the Jordan that they were part of Israel. Time and time and time again, you can talk about Samuel setting up the stone Ebenezer and saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Think about all the memorials you have in the Old Testament. And then when we come to the New Testament, what has God given us? God has only instituted one memorial for us. Even uh, you know, the, the modern institutions of Christmas and Easter are not found as God-ordained celebrations within the scripture. Uh, God has given us one memorial. And so everything that the Christian needs to remember, in contrast to all those feast days and all those Sabbaths and new moons and, and memorials in the Old Testament, God has wrapped up everything that we as Christians need to remember in one memorial meal. I'm not sure if we can overstate the importance of what God is urging us to remember within the Lord's Supper. What makes it so important? What makes it something that they devoted themselves to? Something that was so central to their spiritual health and growth? What makes it our one memorial well, I want to talk about four different aspects, and today we're just going to talk about two. What we might first think about as we think about the Lord's Supper is the aspect of it being a memorial meal. Uh, we, we read there in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, this idea that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, if you want to read with me there in verse 23, it says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we do this to remind ourselves and to proclaim it to other people, uh, to remind one another of the death of Jesus. We're continually proclaiming his sacrifice so that, it, so that it's fresh in our minds, so that it will shape the way that we live and think each week. And we do this, he says, until the day that Jesus comes again. Now, in our society, we understand the idea of memorial, Right? Uh, you, you go over to, to Washington, D.C., and you walk around there. How many different memorials will you see? You know, you see the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Uh, you see the Abraham Lincoln Memorial or the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. And we have even what we call Memorial Day, where we take time to remember people that, that gave their lives for our nation. And yet, how much more worthy is our Lord and Savior for our memorial, for us to take time to remember him, how he laid down his life, not for some physical freedom or physical nation, but for our spiritual freedom, for our eternal salvation. You know, the Jews, as we already said, were very familiar with the idea of memorial as well, but for them, uh, they were very familiar with the idea of a memorial meal, which may not be something that, that is as uh, customary for us. Maybe Thanksgiving might be something that, that is kind of a memorial meal to some extent for us. 
but this is something they were very familiar with, and I want to take some time specifically to look at the Passover, because uh, out of all the memorial meals that the Jewish people had, uh, this one most strongly connects with this idea of the Lord's Supper. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 12, we're not going to read this entire section, but I put the, the full scriptures up there for you to look over um, on your own. Let, let's read uh, verse 14 of chapter 12 here. Here God says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as the statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This was Israel's memorial day. Um, but they weren't just remembering people, they were remembering God. If you look down in verse 17, it says, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. If you look in verse 26 and 27, he says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so here they had this memorial meal to commemorate what God had accomplished in releasing them from Egyptian bondage. And each element of that feast reminded them of something about this experience that, that their nation had gone through. About this deliverance that God had provided. Uh, we see that they were to eat unleavened bread. And in fact, there was a feast of unleavened bread for seven days around the time of, of Passover specifically. And that unleavened bread reminded them of how they had left Egypt in haste. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, it specifically connects this idea of unleavened bread with them leaving with haste. They didn't have time for their bread to rise. Uh, they needed to rush out. In fact, if you look here in uh, chapter 12 and verse 11, he talks about this idea in general. In verse 11, he says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So here they're remembering how quickly all of this happened, how quickly God uh, brought this death of the firstborn, and they had to be ready at a moment's notice to go ahead and exit uh, the land, something that they had been begging to do for, for uh, many uh, weeks and months. We also see uh, that they ate bitter herbs, uh, and historically at least there, there may be a connection between this idea of the, the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt and a reminder from those, those bitter herbs. We know certainly they ate the Passover lamb, uh, and this Passover lamb reminded them of that death of the firstborn when God passed over and destroyed the firstborn of the people of Egypt. They slaughtered this lamb in the place of their firstborn. And so this lamb died in their place. And its blood was put on the, the lintel and on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over them. It was their mark uh, of safety for the atonement of, of this sacrifice. And so every element was intended to help remind them of the deliverance that God had accomplished. Why, why are we talking about the Passover? Because in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is our Passover meal. Uh, if you look in Luke chapter 22, 
Luke 22 and verse 14. Now, we'll be turning back some to Exodus, so if you want to mark your Bibles there, feel free to. But Luke 22, verse 14 says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When was it that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper? On the night he was betrayed as they were commemorating Passover. And what does he say about that? He says, I have longed to eat this Passover with you because I'm not going to eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What is he talking about there? Well, the Passover was, was ultimately not just pointing backwards towards something that God had done for his people, but it was also pointing forwards towards something that God would do for his people. And so Jesus is going to fulfill that, and he lays the groundwork that very night for the fulfillment of the Passover feast in this new memorial that they will remember the lamb slain for them, the deliverance that God provided. And so he transforms the Passover meal into something new, something fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, as Paul is talking there about avoiding uh, the, the leaven, of false teaching that would leaven a whole lump. He says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so our Passover today is a commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice for us. It is his blood that has saved us from destruction. It is his sacrifice that has brought us out of bondage, not out of Egypt, not physical bondage, but spiritual, out of bondage to sin. And so, just as the Israelites celebrated the Passover to remember God's deliverance of them, we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember God's deliverance of us. It's a proclamation of our deliverance. You remember back there in Exodus chapter 12, we read uh, verse 25 through 27, where it talks about when, when your children ask, well, what, what is this service about? What is this feast about? It says, you're going to tell them it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Later on in chapter 13 of Exodus, in verse 8, we read, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hands and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with the strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And so he says, you teach your children. You keep this memorial so that you can be reminded of what God has done for you, but also so that you can remind others, so that you can proclaim God's deliverance for you. So you can teach your children after you, and they can teach their children. Well, brethren, that's what we do today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, remember, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just like the Israelites were to continually tell this story of God's deliverance for them. 
God's people today are to continually tell this story, to remind ourselves, to keep this fresh in our minds, but also to teach our children. That they, every time we sit down and partake of the Lord's Supper, we can remind them, this represents Jesus' blood. This represents Jesus' body. This represents his sacrifice so that we could be freed from sin. And so we proclaim our deliverance. This is our memorial feast. And brethren, this is much more important than any memorial that, that we may be used to in our country. More important as much as we honor and appreciate our, our country, um, as Dave was talking about, our citizenship is in heaven. And more important than any memorial, more important than, than your birthday, <laughs> more important than anything, is our memorial of Jesus' sacrifice for us. We, we can't overstate the importance of what it is that we're remembering in the Lord's Supper. But closely related with that idea of memorial is this idea of a sacrificial meal. We already talked about, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, how Jesus is called our Passover lamb. And actually, in John chapter 1, as John the Baptist is introducing his disciples to Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and you think about the Lord's Supper itself. Why flesh and blood? You know, out of all the different things that, that we could have commemorated, you know, we could have said this represents God's grace and this represents God's mercy or this represents God's love. Why flesh and blood? Why the body and blood of Jesus? Well, really, that's the language of sacrifice. You look through the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament and you see God's instructions to the priests uh, about the different sacrifices. And what is he constantly telling them? Well, you, you need to do this with the blood. You, you need to pour out the blood at the base of the altar. You need to put it on the horns of the altar. Or you need to sprinkle it before the veil or sprinkle it on the people or put it on your thumb and your earlobe and your uh, big toe. Constantly, he's telling them what to do with the blood and he's telling them what to do with the flesh. In some sacrifices, they were to burn the burnt offering. They were to burn all of the flesh. In some cases, the, the priest was to eat of it or the one who participated in that sacrifice was to eat of that sacrifice. Um, what were they supposed to do with the flesh? What were they supposed to do with the blood? In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 39, this is symbolic. It's talking about a sacrificial meal uh, in the context of judgment. But here in Ezekiel 39, uh, this symbolic meal of judgment, he says uh, in verse 17, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. Now, we're going to talk in a little bit how drinking blood was not a common part of the, the Jewish practice uh, in these sacrif sacrifices at all. But you see, again, the sacrificial meal uh, often was associated with flesh and blood and what they were supposed to do with those two things. What was the significance of a sacrificial meal? Why, why did they have those in the Old Testament? Well, ultimately, by partaking of Christ's body and blood, we are declaring our participation in his sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 18, in the context of talking about meat sacrificed to idols, 
and warning them against participating in that. Uh, Paul writes here in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So those who eat of the sacrifice are those who participate in the altar, in the worship. Um, it, it was the one who was involved in slaying that animal. And the one who that animal was being slain for, that was the one who, in many cases, partook of that animal, who ate part of that sacrificial feast. If you want to look back to Leviticus chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 6, and we'll look in verse 25 and 26, starting in verse 24. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Who, who was the one who ate of that sin offering? Well, the one who participated in slaying it. The one who was offering that sin offering. And so what does it say to us when we are taking part symbolically in our sacrifice? What we're declaring is... I'm the one who slew that sacrifice. It, it was my sin that put it on the altar. I'm the one who put Jesus on the altar of the cross. And it was for me. Not only am I the one who put him there, I'm the one for whom he died. That it is his sacrifice that is providing atonement for me. Now, I want to clarify, this doesn't mean that we are cleansed of our sins when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, again, this is, is symbolically reminding us of our sacrifice. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring that our sins have been cleansed by the sacrifice that these emblems represent. Um, and so it's a continual reminder that Jesus died for me, that it's my sin that put him there, and it's my sin that is atoned by his body and his blood upon the cross. In Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, uh, in Luke's account, in verse 19, he says, it says, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. First Corinthians 11, some versions say, which is broken for you. He then says, do this in remembrance of me, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What we're commemorating here is that this body was broken for me. This blood was poured out for me. This is, this is my sacrifice. By God's grace. This is the sacrifice that has died in my place. Very similar to the, the Passover lamb when the blood is put up on the door. That lamb died in the place of the firstborn of that household that should be dead right now. That's me. I should be dead. He died in my place. It is the flesh that took my punishment. It is the blood that paid the price for my sins. It is the sacrifice that has brought me atonement 
and salvation. And yet there's one big difference between the sacrificial meals of the Old Testament and our sacrificial meal. And that's that we drink the life-giving blood of our sacrifice. If you look in Leviticus chapter 17, we see that the Israelites were forbidden from drinking blood. And notice the reason given for that. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 10, we read, If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Why is it that they weren't supposed to drink the blood? He says it's the life. And that life, you don't, you don't get to drink it. You don't get to take it in. It has to be on the altar. It's given on the altar for you. Well, then why in the Lord's Supper are we now symbolically drinking Jesus' blood? Because the fact is, Jesus didn't just give his life for us. He gave his life to us. We are able to imbibe the, the life that Jesus provides because that sacrifice didn't stay dead. Because he conquered death. And so life wasn't just something given for us, it is something now given to us. Something that we are able to take in. I, I want to look at, at one last passage in John chapter 6. that talks about this idea of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. If you want to start turning over there, uh, John chapter 6, but I want to make uh, a few clarifications before we read this passage. Number one, um, certainly many in the religious world uh, among uh, our Catholic friends uh, believe the idea of what they call transubstantiation. And this is the idea that, that kind of mystically the, the bread and the fruit of the vine kind of transforms into the actual body and actual blood of Jesus. Um, I think uh, Mike had kind of mentioned that idea uh, a while back in, in one of his Lord's Supper talks. Uh, and I think we need to recognize clearly that the Bible doesn't teach that. When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he is being just as literal as he was when he said to Peter, this is the rock on which I will build my church. Right? P Peter wasn't supposed to kind of look down at the ground and say, well, this rock? Or, or are you talking about this rock? Well, no, no, he's talking symbolically about the significance of what's going on there. Um, and the idea of us eating Jesus's flesh and eating his blood is, is no more literal than what the Bible says about us receiving the seed of God's word or bearing the fruit of the spirit. Uh, it's not that this literally or mystically transforms into uh, the body and blood of Jesus. And along with that, as we read John 6, I want to make it clear as well, in John 6, I don't think Jesus is primarily talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, John 6 is talking about the language of sacrifice, right? This idea that we're talking about. And what he's saying here we're going to see is unless you take part in Jesus' sacrifice, then you're not going to have any life in you. Uh, and so John 6 is kind of pointing forward to this idea of sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is pointing backwards toward this idea of sacrifice. They're pointing towards the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. But I don't think Jesus here is specifically talking about the Lord's Supper in John 6. 
Um, so let's go ahead and read verse 53 and 54. Here Jesus says, uh, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now again, this is repulsive to the Jews. We don't eat blood. First of all, we're not cannibals. But even if it's an animal, we don't drink blood. But Jesus here is teaching them, using this imagery, that they, if they want to receive the eternal life that he has to provide, they're going to fully take in his sacrifice. They need to take part in his sacrifice uh, by symbolically eating his flesh and drinking, yes, his blood, his life being received by them. And so we don't... Uh, we don't have our sins washed away. We, we don't um, come in contact initially with the blood of Jesus through the Lord's Supper, right? In the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what we have been cleansed by. That by being buried with Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life, we have taken part in his sacrifice. And we here today, as we take of symbolically this body and this blood, are remembering that sacrifice and commemorating that sacrifice and proclaiming that sacrifice that by God's grace has cleansed my sins away. By God's grace has given me new life. That Jesus took my punishment, he took my death, and not only did he take it, he conquered it so that he can give me life. In just a moment, Jason's going to lead us in a song to help prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then Dave is, is going to lead us in partaking the Lord's Supper. But I hope that by spending a little extra time focusing on what the scriptures say about the Lord's Supper, we, we can come to have a deeper appreciation for the importance and significance of what we're doing. Next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll talk about two other aspects of the Lord's Supper. Um, but let us not forget that this is something we need to be devoting ourselves to. This is not just a checklist item on what we do every time we come together. This is something of great and abiding importance to our spiritual well-being. That at the forefront of our minds, week after week, is the price that was paid so that we could live a new life. Not our old life, but that we could take up our cross and follow Jesus. Jason.